Beautiful. Thanks, Jono. Uh, this term, and perhaps longer, we're doing a series looking at the paradoxes of the Christian faith. And a paradox is uh, something, is two statements that appear contradictory, um, and believing both of them creates some tension in us, but actually uh, have to be lived out together. And the resolution of the paradox generally comes through living, uh, and they are ultimately resolvable even though on the surface they're not. And they can cause some tensions. And so we're doing this. And last week uh, we looked at the paradox of Abraham and a God who gives everything but then asks for stuff back. And you go, why would God need something back from us? And tonight we're looking at the paradox that we discover in uh, this story of Moses and the bush that didn't burn. And to get us into this, I want to ask you all a question. And uh, turn to the person or people next to you and answer this question. Where is God? Go. And then we're going to share the answers. Where's God? That was a very animated discussion. Okay, where's God? What did you come up with? God is everywhere. Cool. Is that it? Yep. Spiritually everywhere, but physically not everywhere. Different dimensions of reality, sort of. I sort of know what you mean. Yeah, it does sound weird. But that's all right. It's pretty weird stuff we're going to be talking about tonight. What else? Where's God? He's everywhere. God is in his heavens and his spirit is throughout creation. That's cool. Yeah, that's a good answer. He's everywhere and nowhere simultaneously. Yeah. He's everywhere and he's nowhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because here's the question, right? God is everywhere. Now, if you, I feel like we're at an Oprah show where if you just reach under your seats, you'll find God under your chair, you know? Like, you should always have presents and, like, amazing things, like you, the keys to a car under the seat. If you go to, go to an Oprah show, one show she gave everybody a new car, right? And you'd reach under and it'd be amazing. So is God, like, so where is God? I'm not sure. Like, right now? Can you? Can anyone? Let me ask. Can anyone see God right now? Isn't it interesting, right? Like um, uh, the Bible says, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. That's exactly right. Okay, um, but but isn't it also true that this omnipresent God also feels impossibly distant from us, like invisible, inaccessible? Um, I can't see, feel, or locate God. And because of that, actually, a very common response to people is, well, I can't, God doesn't exist, right? I, I can't see him, I can't feel him, I can't touch him, I can't smell him. Therefore, he doesn't exist. Have you ever wondered that? And the Bible, and that's the paradox. The God who is everywhere, who is also really hard to find. 
So, um, uh, which is weird. Like, if God is everywhere, surely he is, you know, he, it's not like my keys. I lose my keys all the time. And they are hard to find. But that's because my keys are not omnipresent. Like, if my keys were everywhere in the world, I'd never have any trouble finding them, would I? So why isn't God like that? You ever wondered that? Have you ever wondered in the quiet moments if God actually does exist, given how hard he is to experience, connect with? Um, the Bible teaches that God is present everywhere. You know, the Psalm 139 says, if we were to go up to the heavens or the depths of the ocean, God is there. Colossians says God is the one in whom all of creation holds together and he's described as being not far from us. The people in the Old Testament hung out with him. Moses, Enoch walked with God. They seemed to see God and encounter God. It's pretty cool. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. And you go, yes, I believe that. You believe that? But then the Bible also seems to say that God is elusive and distant, right? The Bible says his ways are above our ways, that he's the Lord of heaven and earth and doesn't live in temples built by human hands. You see, this is one of the ways human beings throughout history and every religion have tried to resolve the tension of this paradox because all human beings have a sense that there is something greater and bigger and better and there is a God beyond us, but, but we all can't see this God. So what do we do? Well, we, we try and create... Uh, through building temples and wonderful massive cathedrals, uh, a place where we can experience the grandeur and the godness of God. And then God says, I'm not there. <laughs> Do your best, people. Build your biggest cathedrals. Get Crank out the smoke machines. Bust out the Hillsong worship. Paint your beautiful art, your religious iconography and your art. and It's amazing. And I'm not there. Huh, but I thought you were everywhere, God. That's unusual, isn't it? Um, you read the Psalms, and I mean, these were super religious people, and the Psalms are full of people calling on a God who seems to have hidden himself, a God who's, who's in hiding, a God who seems to have abandoned his people. Time after time you read the Psalms, like Jono did on Tuesday night at our prayer meeting, Psalm 63, and it's a psalm of longing for God, of seeking after God, of having a, an unbearable thirst for God. But if God is everywhere, why should that be the case? Ever thought about that? Now, now, it's important to think about these things because they're two central bits of both the Bible and our experience. And the Christian faith is not a faith that steps away from questioning and from thinking hard about life. Um, the Christian faith is not a faith where we take our brains out of gear. It's a faith that actually, while it's at one level extremely simple to believe, is also extraordinarily intellectually challenging full of challenges, and uh, to the extent that we are able and inclined to do so, we can step up to those challenges and apply our minds to think about some of these things. It's interesting, right? So um, Moses, uh, we're, we're going to think a bit about Moses' experience of God, right? 
He's described in the Bible as the only guy who's seen God face to face. Deuteronomy uh, 34.10, right? Deuteronomy 34.10. Moses has seen God face to face. And, uh, and yet, and yet we'll see, it has some interesting consequences for Moses. So what is, how does Moses experience God? Well, well firstly, he, he, does, he experiences God in Egypt. Uh, we know the story. Israelites suffering, oppression, slavery, genocide. God sees them, hears their groaning, and acts to save them. So God is with people in their distress. He's with Moses in his distress. And you go, that is phenomenally good news. Uh, I've had conversations just in the last month with a number of people who have found God uh, in their place of enormous distress. Uh, so people who have found God um, uh, at the end of the rope of their addiction, when they finally get to the end of their addiction and check themselves into rehab because they're about to die, and that's where they find God. I've, I've had a couple of conversations like that in the last month with people. He's with us in our suffering as he was with the Egyptians. And you go, yes. God hears and is concerned. The Bible makes that abundantly clear, and it's clear in Moses' experience. But then um, Moses has a, has a different experience of just the, the, the providential action of God to rescue, or even the amazing act of God to rescue. He then has this direct encounter with God in the bush that doesn't burn. We always talk about the burning bush, but it's actually just the bush that didn't burn. That was pretty cool. Like, burning bushes aren't that great. Like, we had a lot of them just recently. But bushes that look like they're burning but aren't burning, that's pretty special. And that's where, where, where Moses has this direct encounter with God. And then, and then he has a direct encounter with God up on the mountain. So then he goes up on the mountain. And God passes in front of him. He's got to hide himself in a cliff, but then God's glory passes in front of him. And then you know what happens? Immediately after Moses has encountered God in these places, the first thing, the, 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 sort of almost the first commandment, that not quite commandment, the instruction God gives Moses is actually to do something really paradoxically weird. He says to Moses, what you've got to do is limit uh, people's access to God. You would think, wouldn't you? You've, you've seen God in the bush that didn't burn. You've encountered God face to face up on the mountain. You would think the most spiritually helpful thing you could do for your people was go, hey guys, come with me up the mountain and you can experience God directly yourself. Don't you reckon you'd say that? I would. Like, I don't know. If God was down at the Woolies in Roselle... I'd been out, gone down to get a Pepsi Max, and I'd met God in all his glory, just shining out of woolies. I wouldn't come here and say, let's just do our normal service. I'd be like, guys, come on, come on, you've got to come. God's here. Come face to face with God. It's amazing. Okay, and then that's, that's, that'd be a reasonable thing to do. But God actually says to Moses, tell them not to come up the mountain. Don't. Keep them away from the mountain. 
tells him with a burning bush, don't come any closer. God seems to be present generally in our need, and then he shows up in a specific time and place. But then he says, don't come close. Why? What's going on there? Uh, and it gets, it's, we see this worked out throughout the history of Israel because um, if you've ever tried to read the Bible in a year and you st- or the Bible from cover to cover, you start in like Genesis 1 and then you, you plug on through and eventually you'll get to these massively detailed instructions of how to construct a tabernacle. Lots of people stop reading the Bible at this point because it's like it's this many cubits and there's this and there's this kind of jo- this kind of incredibly elaborate detailed instructions about the tabernacle. And the point of the tabernacle was to keep people away from God's glory in an unmediated way. And then it's not just the tabernacle, right? What was the other central symbol in Israel of the presence of God? The ark? Yeah. Keep going forward in time. Temple. Yeah, the tabernacle, the ark, the temple. Okay, so the temple... Uh, again, you'd go, this is, the, this is the place where God dwells, on the mountain that Moses went up to, maybe we think, you know. So there's the, there's the mountain, and there's the temple, and, and there's God. And the temple has all these ways to limit the access of people to God. Like, you have the, the outer court of the Gentiles, so Gentiles and women can go there. and Then there's a next layer in where good Jewish men can go, and and, and where is God in the temple? He's in a place called the Holy of Holies, so to speak. Okay, this is the, this is the place in, 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 Hebrew, in the Hebrew Scriptures, in all of the world, in all of creation. God is everywhere. But if you want to pick one spot where God's presence is most tangibly represented and maybe accessible, it's in the Holy of Holies. Now, you would think, if you're a priest in the temple, you would want to be cycling people through the Holy of Holies all the time. You'd be like, man, you've got to come to the Holy of Holies. You've got to connect with God again. I see a bit of sin in your life. Come to the Holy of Holies. Get charged up again. You're getting, you know, you're getting a bit lazy in, in your faith. Come to the Holy of Holies. Get charged up. See God. Come experience God. Wouldn't that be the best thing you, should do, you could do? Um, some of you probably know the answer to this. How many people got to go into the Holy of Holies each year? One. And it was the high priest. And he had to go through a whole big ritual before he went in to make sure he was super clean. And when he went in, what did he have tied around his ankle? A rope. A big, long rope. Why did he have a big, long rope tied around his ankle? To pull him out in case he died while he was in there. Access to God was so limited and it was so dangerous to go in that you had to tie a rope around the high priest's ankle so that if he went in and had a heart attack, got smitten, smoted, smited, died, you couldn't go in and get him out. You just, you'd, you'd, you'd haul him out. I don't know if that ever happened. Why is that? It's very interesting, isn't it? Uh, uh, and and uh, we, we I, 
This actually takes us to the very heart of Christianity and the Christian faith. And it's very, very significant and, it, and, and the heart of what God is like. Um, and it takes us, it, it, the whole temple, this whole structure is designed to help us understand two things about God. And in the understanding of these two things, relate to God in a way that resolves it. So the, the two ideas here are God's transcendence uh, and God's imminence. So what is transcendence? Transcendence means that God is wholly other. He is completely unlike you and me. Uh, utterly, totally other. Let me... Uh, where's my... Just add a page here. There we go. Uh, here's a way to think about it. Here's a line. And here is uh, the creator. And here is the creation. And God's transcendence says that he is above the line. Right? That's it. That is a big line, okay? And he is the only being who is above the line. We are creatures, and we are below the line. That's us. We're happy, but we're below the line. And God's transcend God says God is transcendent. He is, he is not like us. He is utterly, utterly other. And he's other, here's a big word, he's other ontologically. Okay? That means he's actually a fundamentally different order of being. Completely different to us. He's also wholly other morally. So he is the only being who is completely, utterly pure, in whom there is no darkness there is no impurity, there is no evil, there is no sin, there is nothing that detracts. Below the line, we're creatures, we're made by this being, and we are flawed. We're wonderful and glorious, but everything below the line is flawed and messed up, right? Uh, so that's his transcendence. He's transcendent. And his imminence says this transcendent God is still willing and able to cross the line. The Creator is, is actually able to come across the line and come into this world and engage with His creation. Uh, God is everywhere present in His transcendence, but He is specifically, particularly present at times uh, in his imminence, in his... So this is God as holy other, and uh, this is God as with us. Okay. Now, you, the paradox is resolved not by excluding one or the other, so uh, one of the other truths, but by living with both of them. 
So some problems can emerge if you overemphasize the imminence of God. It didn't come up this evening, but this morning people talked a bit about Some folks said, well, God is in us and God is in everything. It's sort of right, but sort of not. So the imminence of God says God, and if, if we, um, what can happen uh, in, and it happens in many cultures and religions, is we start to mistake the creature for the creation. We start to think that this line here gets broken down and the creator God is actually in creation. So uh, how many of you, you may be the wrong demographic, some of you, how many of you have watched Marie Kondo on Netflix? Okay, so Marie Kondo is a Japanese lady who goes into uh, American houses and cleans them out. It's worth watching. It's a kind of strange show. Okay, so it became very popular. Marie Kondo. And, uh, and Americans have a lot of junk, and she'll go in and she'll kind of she'll clean the house out. And uh, what's very interesting, though, is she gets them to sort it out. And the criteria for deciding what to keep or what not to keep is to study the thing you have and say, does this spark joy for me? Okay, so you study a thing. You might have, you know, all your kids' old school books. And you say, do they spark joy? And you go, nope, did you see the grades they got? I'd rather forget that, you know. Or um, those, you know, all those clothes you bought on sale that you've never worn, do they spark joy? Okay, so then you go, no, they don't. So you've got a whole pile of stuff you're going to throw out. But you know what's very interesting? You know what Marie Kondo makes these uh, Americans do before they throw their stuff out? They have to thank each article before they throw it out and honor it. It's interesting, isn't it? Why do you think Marie Kondo, as a Japanese lady, might get Westerners to thank the uh, stuff that they're throwing out? Because she's weird? No, no, no. Very profound reason. Because she's Shinto. Shintoism is a dominant religion in Japan. And Shintoism is a, a pantheistic religion. Shintoism believes that God is present in everything. This line between creator and creature doesn't exist. So you, you have to look at what... So inanimate objects have the divine in them. So you can't just throw something out because actually that's the divine spirit is in this thing you're throwing out. So even in removing it from your home, you have to thank it because you're thanking God. Everything is infused with and contains the divine. That's a key doctrine of Shintoism. By the way, that explains the aesthetic of Japan, right? The incredible uh, workmanship and, and care with which they do stuff and make stuff. It's because when you're carving a block of wood, you're carving something that's divine. Okay, um, That's one of the problems, biblically, uh, with an overemphasis on the imminence of God. It's not what the Bible teaches. God, God is located in the world, but he's not of the world. He's, he's trans, he never, you can never lose his transcendence, this line that he's the creator, he's and we are the creatures. Um, you see it in uh, this, this breaking down of this line in some of the environmental movement where we actually end up worshipping the creation. Um, so you go... 
Uh, one expression of this is I, I go out into the woods or I, I go to a beach or I climb a mountain and that's where I most strongly experience God. And you go, okay, good, that's great. But the next step is to say somehow I actually encounter God in creation itself. And that's, that's a problem, right? You, you only believe that if you've never seen the utterly brutal, heartless, merciless elements of creation, like growing up in Africa, you know, where you'd watch animals killing other animals. There's a lovely, have anyone seen impalas or springbok? Springbok, they, they bounce along and they're, they're beautiful little animals and they're bouncing along. You get a little baby impala and it's bouncing along behind its mum and you just go, oh, oh, that's so cute. And the next one, the lion comes and breaks its neck and chomps it apart. And I grew up watching this happen and watching movies of this. And, and, and nature is brutal and cruel and merciless as well as glorious and wonderful. So uh, there are some problems for me, I think, in worshipping nature. The God that you might find in, in nature is, a, is actually a pretty cruel, brutal God, if you're honest. It's only if you... Um, really live in the inner city and don't really experience nature as it is in all its brutality that you might think that's an appealing version of God. And the Bible says what if we respect this tension between the transcendent and the imminent, guess what? Or we are to join with creation in worshiping the creator, not to worship the creation. So here's the creation. It's all green. This is a globe. There's bits of the world. And, uh, and us together... With this creation, we worship God. That's the way it works, right? We join with creation. Um, one of the other problems of, of overemphasizing the imminence of God is we can, we can sentimentalize God. And we can make God like, well, God's like my boyfriend. Jesus is my boyfriend. He's just there to make me feel good about myself all the time, to meet all my needs. He's just a soft, mushy God. He's just like, ah. <sighs> And like, look, God, the Bible's clear, you know. God does love us profoundly, deeply. There are metaphors of God that, um, that God is described as a loving father, a caring mother, a faithful friend, a genuine helper. But we've got to be careful that we don't turn God into just a, a sentimentalized figure because that's not a God who's going to sustain us through hard times. I mean, what, what do you do? What do you do when manifestly God hasn't meet, met your felt needs. When he hasn't come through for you in a way that you want, when life is disappointing and hard, you then go, well, my boyfriend's abandoned me. An over-sentimentalized view of God is, is no help in the real tr struggles of life. Because the God of the Bible says sometimes his, his love will be severe, his mercy will be severe. Sometimes God will let us suffer. Many times he will discipline us, he will rebuke us. As a father disciplines that child, so God will discipline us. We can't think that God's fundamental job and raison d'etre is to make me feel good about me individually or that God's fundamental job in the universe is to ensure the success of my nation, state, or ethnicity, or tribe. We love doing that. God is on our side. As a nation, you go into war and you put the cross before you and your flag and then you get the lunacy of the First World War where you've got, you know, 
the English guys and the Americans praying to God and begging Jesus to be on their side and grant them victory over the Germans. And you've got the Germans on the other side praying to the same God and the same Jesus for help and victory over the English. And you know what? I don't think God's that much that interested in the particular fortunes of a particular nation state. He's beyond that. But there can be a problem if you go, okay, let's not, let's not focus on the imminence too much. There can be a problem if we overemphasize the transcendence, right? Because what we can think, if, if all we do, uh, if all we do is live up here, then you can start, you know what, we, we end up going, um, God, is, God is both physically and emotionally distant and unavailable, uh, we, we, we embrace a f- what's called deism, the idea that this world just runs on its own, that God's the giant watchmaker, he's made the watch, set it going, and he's not actually that involved. Um, and, and that's a common thought, isn't it? Like most of us, we, we devolve to that. But what's fascinating, if you read Genesis chapter 3, by the way, it's fascinating. What's the first thing that God does after Adam and Eve have sinned in Genesis 1 and 2? Oh, in Genesis 3. So Genesis 1 and 2, they're created. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. What's the first thing that God does? He what? Clothes them? Before that? Before he can clothe them, he's got to do something else. Kills an animal? He's got to do that. Yep, before he does that, what's he got to do? He goes looking for them. Goes looking for them. Don't ever so emphasize the transcendence and otherness of God that you forget that right from the start of the Bible, we worship a God who comes looking for people who have just broken his heart. God is able to cross this divide, God is able to come down and come looking for us and he does and he'll come looking for you and he comes looking for me if we overemphasize the transcendence we can think that maybe he's unable to intervene anymore oh he's, he just can't do it or maybe we'll think perhaps even worse he's unwilling to intervene and we know that i mean it's a, that's a legitimate thought you go if you've ever really struggled with pain or a difficult situation and and God's seemingly absent, you can start to think maybe, maybe he's unable to help out you or maybe he doesn't want to help out. And the Bible says, no, he can and he will. How do we resolve this? How do we resolve this? Well, uh, the place where this is resolved most close, most clearly, um, is where? Well, the Creator comes into the world... And he comes in the person of his son, Jesus. And in the death of Jesus, we see the creator God coming to find us. And then we see the creator God dying in our place. Why? To remove any obstacle. You see, the problem we had is we we couldn't get up through this barrier, right? So what God does in Jesus Christ is he comes and he says, listen, guys, you come hold on to me. 
And what I'll do is I will come down, I will die, and then I will rise again and I will take you back up to be with me forever. When Jesus dies, uh, he cries out, he hangs on the cross. Uh, this is God's son himself, and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the imminence of God, God with us, God in the world, but actually in Jesus' own experience, God abandoning him, God's transcendence, God's, God's absence. But then he takes that on, that absence of God for us, to shatter this divide, to forever to forever do away with anything that would get in the way of our relating to God. At the moment of his death, what happened in the temple? What happened around the Holy of Holies in the temple? There's a great big curtain in the temple. That, that, it was the curtain that closed off access to the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died, what do the gospel stories say happened to that curtain? It was ripped and have you ever noticed in what direction was the, was the curtain ripped? From the top to the bottom. Because God says, I'm going to show you this whole temple typology and structure that says there is a transcendent God who is present, but you can't access this God because you're unholy and you're unclean and you're impure. And if you come too close, you're going to get killed. In the death of Jesus, that is resolved because now the temple curtain is ripped from top to bottom. And God says, you're welcome to come in. I've found you and I've done everything necessary to bring you home. And there's nothing to stop you connecting with me deeply and intimately and personally forever and forever always and so today we can know God now of course we can't know him physically he's still not present but we can experience his transcendence and his imminence wrapped up in Jesus he now and here's the difference as we come into the presence of God through the sacrifice of Jesus he changes our hearts so that we can actually be in a long-term relationship with God. Because here's the thing, right? Um, and I need to make this point quickly, and it will resolve some challenges for you. You may still feel like, but hang on, I want to see God physically present. And if only I could see God physically present, then it would all be great, and I'd have no struggle with faith. Let me ask you a question. Um, the big problem is not God's lack of physical presence. The problem is our hearts and what we do with God. Because what happened to the Israelites who saw God physically rescue them from Egypt? Did it do them much good? <laughs> no sooner had God rescued them than they started whinging and complaining and doubting and not trusting and in fact worshipping other gods. The problem is not God's physical absence. Actually, the problem is our hearts. And when we are reconnected with God through the sacrifice of Jesus and his spirit, is poured out, his spirit is poured out on us, we can start to live with him in a way that we, we, never, we never lose sight of his otherness, but we experience that he is with us deeply and permanently and forever and for always. And then we can start to think about some of the other paradoxes of life and faith, which we'll get to next week. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you love us. Thank you for this teaching, for this uh, amazing set of truths that we see start to open up for us with Moses. And I pray for us as your people that we will know that you are with us always and will experience you deeply and in life-changing ways. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus, who, though was God himself, took upon himself our humanity 
and became sin for us so that in his dying and rising he might uh, blow apart, shatter anything that would keep us from connecting with you. Thank you so very much for that, Jesus. Amen. We're going to sing.